Now take your Bibles, please, and turn to the prophecy of Habakkuk. Tonight we begin chapter 3. And our text will be verses 1 through 7. Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigionot. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures once again, and we pray that you'd speak to our hearts the message that you have for us from them this evening, and we ask it for the glory and the honor of our Savior Jesus Christ, who is the very Word made flesh. Amen. There's no other book in the Bible uh, whose form is quite like that of the book of Habakkuk. The book's made up of three chapters, and in the first two chapters, uh, they present dialogue between God and the prophet. And now as we come to the third chapter, we have what's even described in the text itself as a prayer. The literary form of this passage is poetical. It follows the normal patterns of Hebrew poetry, and so does the rest of the book, for that matter. Chapter 3 of Habakkuk might even be called a psalm. And you may have noticed some similarities between this chapter of Habakkuk and many of the psalms. Like 55 of the psalms, Habakkuk 3 bears the dedicatory statement, you see it at the very end of this chapter, to the choir master. Now when you hear that, when you read that in the psalms, it always comes at the beginning in the, in the title But nevertheless, we have that here in Habakkuk. And as a further indication that this is essentially a song to be sung, we have the instruction at the end with stringed instruments. Now the heading of this prayer of Habakkuk includes the phrase, according to Shigionot. And you think, what is Shigionot? Well, it's the plural of Shigion, duh. Uh, That's later found in uh, Psalm 7. So there's some relationship, it seems, between Habakkuk 3 and Psalm 7, but nobody really has any idea what that relationship is because nobody really knows what 
Shigeon or Shigeonot mean. Sorry about that. Now, that's why, though, in the footnote in your Bible, it might say something different than the footnote in your friend's Bible if that person's using a, uh, a different translation or a different version. Um, and they'll almost always be qualified. When you read footnotes in places in the Scripture like this, you'll f- probably find a word like probably or possibly because, frankly, no one knows. Speaking of things we don't know, uh, you may see that in Habakkuk 3, three times the word Selah appears. You see that word many, many times in the Psalms. The only place outside of the Psalms that Selah appears is right here in this chapter of Habakkuk. And that too might be a musical term. It might be some sort of direction for worship. Uh, We will find out in heaven and probably not before what it means. Habakkuk wrote this prayer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what we've just read and what we're considering right now is the very Word of God. But Habakkuk was not a robot when he penned this any more than any of the other scripture writers were. He was being carried along by the Spirit, but his, his personality is impressed upon the Word here. And he was a man who was reflecting on the past contemplating what God might do in the days to come. That's why you see the phrase, in the midst of years. He has this sense of God's great work in the past, but he's also looking ahead to what's to come. And so that's why David Baker, in his commentary on this passage, wrote, from his position in the middle of Israelite history, Habakkuk looks back to God's mighty actions at the Exodus and ponders the future. And that's what's at work, particularly in these first seven verses. And Habakkuk teaches us that holy fear is the proper response to God's glory and God's power. Holy fear is the proper response to God's glory and power. So let's first of all consider the fear of the Lord. This comes out for us in verses 1 and 2. The fear of the Lord is a central theme in Scripture, both in the New Testament as well as the Old. But that term, the fear of God or the fear of the Lord, it's fallen out of favor, hasn't it, uh, in our days? Some professing Christians object that the idea of fearing God is incompatible with a, a loving relationship with Him. And People will discuss and debate the meaning of the term. Well, what does it mean when it says the fear of the Lord? What's that supposed to convey to us? And they'll say, uh, well, it just means respect. Or it's just, what it really means is just reverence. And that sounds comfortable to us, of course. But I think it's a mistake to try to rob this term of all connections with dread, all connections with terror, We mustn't forget who God is. And we mustn't forget who we are. We mustn't downplay the creator-creature distinction. God is in heaven. We're on earth. And we mustn't gloss over issues like God's holiness and man's sin and God's just wrath against sin. And Habakkuk has God's wrath in view in this very passage. He mentions it. He speaks of it. 
And he specifically speaks of fearing the works of God. Now, this is not the kind of fear that would characterize an enemy of the Lord. Habakkuk here is not cowering like some, some sort of an infidel, but he is in awe of God. He's in awe of the power of God and of his glorious works. And this awe carries with it a healthy measure of real fear. And if that rubs you the wrong way, I encourage you to spend more time meditating on the attributes of God, particularly His holiness. Ultimately, I think it's fair to equate the fear of the Lord with saving faith. In the end, they're essentially the same thing. If we had to make that case on no other basis, we might draw the conclusion from Psalm 130, verse 4. It says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Sometimes you'll hear people object that there's no need to fear God if you're forgiven. But according to the very Word of God, a man can't truly fear the Lord unless he is forgiven. So let's not be so quick to discard the traditional terminology, the scriptural, clearly scriptural language of the fear of the Lord. In these verses of Habakkuk, we find three components of the fear of the Lord. Not that these are an exhaustive description of the fear of the Lord, but the text brings out three for us to help paint a proper picture of what the fear of God really is. And the first component is The fear of God includes a holy dread, we could say. Holy dread, as Habakkuk writes. Your work, O Lord, do I fear. The prophet knew the Lord his God. The prophet knew what God is capable of. He was aware that God is sovereign over all the nations. And that in his sovereignty, he had in the palm of his hand that dreaded and fearsome nation of the Chaldeans. And he had used the Chaldeans as an instrument to judge nations, and now he was directing that instrument towards the children of Jacob, Habakkuk's own people. Habakkuk knew it was coming. No wonder he prayed, in wrath, remember mercy. So holy dread is one component of the fear of the Lord. A second component of the fear of the Lord we find in these verses is is a holy anticipation. Habakkuk pleads with God to mingle mercy with the blow of discipline because he is certain that that blow is going to fall. I have heard the report of you, he says. And he believed the report that he had heard. God's answer to Habakkuk's first complaint is at least part of what he has in mind here. If you turn back to chapter 1, look at verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Habakkuk heard those words. He's anticipating what God is going to do. God would certainly chastise his covenant people for their sins. But then he's going to judge as well the wicked Chaldeans. Habakkuk knew and was sure of these things. The only thing he could do about it was just wait and anticipate. 
But as he did, he didn't do it in a state of carnal dread, but in a mindset of somber and holy anticipation. And that brings a third component of the fear of the Lord. We've got holy dread, we've got holy anticipation, but then humble submission. Habakkuk has complained to God twice in, uh, in this book. They're recorded here for us, but it's important to remember that Habakkuk's complaint were not grumbling complaints. He approached God in faith. He approached Him in reverence and provided you do the same. You can take your complaints to God too. You're allowed to question God. But you're not allowed to not trust God. When Habakkuk prayed in wrath, remember mercy, he was submitting himself to God's discipline. He was submitting himself to the lordship of God, trusting the judge of all the earth that he would do what is right and believing that the Lord God is compassionate. God doesn't change. And so you can approach him with that same humble submission, holy anticipation, and holy fear. Well, in verses 3 and 4 of the text, we read of the splendor of the Lord. Verse 3 tells of the splendor of the Lord that it covered the heavens. And in verses 3 and 4, we see references to light, references to flashing rays, and we're going to consider all that in a moment. But let's first consider these place names found in verse 3 and the significance of those. It says, God came from Teman. Who is Teman? What was Teman? Where was it? Well, Teman was a grandson of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Teman's descendants became one of the strongest tribes among all the people of Esau. Now, the people of Esau are the people of Edom. So when you hear of Edom and read of that nation, those are the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And Teman was one of the strongest tribes, one of the greatest tribes among the Edomites. And because of that, because of their prominence, Teman is sometimes used as a nickname or an alternate name for the Edomites in much the same way, for instance, that remember the tribe of Ephraim became so big and so powerful in the northern king of Israel that Sometimes the names Israel and Ephraim were used interchangeably. And so that's the way Teman is being used here. <clears throat> and when it then says God came from Teman, it's another way of saying God came from the land of Edom. And then there's the parallel reference to Mount Paran, which is also in the land of Edom. The Israelites would have associated both of those things with their early history, with those days in which God brought them out of the land of Egypt. Because when he did, he brought them through the wilderness. He brought them from the south to the north. And as they were on that journey in which God was leading them, they passed through Edom. Paran was one of Israel's first places of encampment after they departed from Egypt. Or excuse me, after they had departed from Mount Sinai. And so verse 3 is kind of a remembrance of God's powerful campaign of bringing Israel from Sinai into Canaan, the land of promise. But then we have a description of his coming. 
His coming in the sense of His redemptive presence among and with His people, but also His presence, His coming in the sense of judging the nations. And it's described in terms of brightness and of light. And so in verse 3, it goes on to declare the splendor of God and how the earth showed forth His praise. Verse 4 says, His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand. And that second phrase especially that brings to mind lightning, obviously, and um, that's the intent. And the whole passage is an attempt to describe God's splendor. The Hebrew word translated sp- splendor in your Bibles has the sense of majesty, but also a sense of beauty. Like when the Psalms say, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness or in the beauty of holiness, that's the word we're we're looking at here. So with associations like that, light and splendor and majesty and beauty, we uh, tend to hear the word splendor in a generally positive, albeit awesome sense. But splendor can have a much more ominous connotation for the enemies of God. For example, if you look at Isaiah chapter 2, the wicked are warned with these words, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. So you see, for the wicked, splendor isn't necessarily a good thing. It's a frightening thing. There are other examples. Uh, In verse 19 of the same chapter of Isaiah, people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. That sounds like it could come out of Revelation, doesn't it? And you find some of those exact themes in Revelation. And some of those themes of God's splendor being a terror to the wicked in various places in Scripture. And those references demonstrate that whereas the splendor of the Lord is a reverent and joyful and holy fear among those whom He loves, it's grounds for mortal terror among those who oppose Him, among those who spurn His law, among those who reject His anointed. And then at the end of verse 4, there's this concluding phrase, and there He veiled His power. Or as the New American Standard translates it, there is the hiding of His power. I think we can take that phrase to mean something along the lines of what Job was saying. In Job 26, verse 14, Job is reflecting on some of the natural manifestations of God's might. And he sums up by saying, these are but the outskirts of His ways. (coughs) Now, Lightning and the mighty thunder that goes with it is is one of the most awe-inspiring displays of power in nature. We associate that, don't we, with the power of God, lightning and the thunder. But Job and Habakkuk understood that the glory of lightning isn't as much a display of God's power as a veiling of it. It's God's way of just using a light touch in comparison with His true omnipotence. So when you think of God's power, think of the most 
powerful things you can see or you can imagine. And imagine that's just the fringes, just the outskirts, the veiling of His power. And since we've come to the subject of the Lord's power, that's our third point, where in verses 5 through 7, we read of the power of the Lord. Verses 5 through 7 continue to proclaim God's power, but as always, you and I are limited in our capacity to comprehend the power of God for two main reasons. We are finite, and God's power is infinite. And so we can only understand it in a proximate way. We can only understand the power of God by way of analogy. That's why you find so many analogies in Scripture when God is speaking of Himself, because we can't really fully comprehend Him. And so for us to truly comprehend Him, to truly understand, He uses analogies. And yet the analogies used to declare God's power are of such a magnitude as to give a sense of awe and God's might is compared to things like pestilence, and plague, and earthquakes. So when you think about pestilence or plagues, consider the fact that by most estimates we are finally emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic. The symptoms of each variant have become <clears throat> gradually mild, and more and more mild. The use of masks continues to dwindle. The so-called social distancing is mostly a thing of the past. You can still see the marks on the floor, but nobody cares. Consider, though, the, the widespread fear caused by COVID over the past two years. And then consider this. The infection rate of the 19... 18 influenza pandemic was 500 times that of COVID-19. The infection rate, 500 times COVID. The swine flu in 2009 and 10 was 700 times higher than COVID in terms of infection rate. And the annual infection rate of seasonal flu is 800 times higher than COVID. All that to say, let's think in terms, when we hear pestilence or plague, let's think in terms of the effect of bubonic plague in Europe in the Middle Ages, in which one-third of the population of Europe died of the plague. Not got infected, died. So when we hear the words pestilence and plague, we should think of that magnitude of devastation. Truly apocalyptic proportions. Those are proportions given in the book of Revelation in the chapter from just last week. When the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, the effect of what follows is one-third of the world's population dies. Keep that in mind when Habakkuk says, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. <clears throat> The power of God is so far beyond man's power, even beyond what man can imagine or comprehend. And having likened it to the ravages of plague in verse 5, Habakkuk uses seismic imagery in verse 6. He starts talking about earthquakes to describe the power of God. It says, He shook the nations. 
The earth shook when God descended upon Mount Sinai to give the law. Earthquakes occur in various biblical narratives as a manifestation of the awesome power of God. Now, the kings of the earth go to great lengths to glorify themselves with their armies, with pageantry, with all sorts of pomp and circumstance. But there's no king on earth who can muster up an earthquake. That's something only the king of kings can do. And the earth shakes at the very presence of God. He himself shakes the nations. And you see that picture in Habakkuk of God standing up and measuring the earth. That's a term used to describe judgment. He's bringing judgment. He's, he's evaluating. He's assessing the nations. When you see that in numerous times in scriptures where an angel is told to measure the temple or is told in, in Revelation to measure the new Jerusalem, to measure its walls. It's a testing. It's a judgment. And once God has measured the earth, he shakes. And so powerful is the shaking of Almighty God that even the mountains are broken, even the hills bow down. How enduring are the mountains? How old are the hills? They're as old as the earth itself, but they're not eternal. Not in the same sense that God is eternal. He created them. And in the last day, He's going to destroy them. The Lord has the power to do even that. He alone is everlasting. Now in verse 7, we have a classic example of parallelism, a textbook example. And parallelism is a chief attribute, (coughs) chief characteristic of Hebrew poetry. There's parallelism all over the Bible. It's everywhere in the prophets, including Habakkuk, even in the text we're looking at now. But verse 17 is an especially striking example. So you've got tents and curtains, and those two terms are placed in parallel in verse 7. And they're referring to the portable dwelling places of nomadic tribes in the deserts. There's no information about Kushan, unless Kushan is a variation on the name Cush, but Kushan occurs in parallel with Midian, and that would indicate that Kushan is a is a group like the Midianites, perhaps somehow related to them or maybe even a subset of them. So the point of verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. The point there, very much like the point of verse 3, is to portray the terror that God's presence stirs among the inhabitants of the land in his mighty advance working his sovereign will, both in salvation and in judgment. But holy fear is the proper response to God's glory and power. So in conclusion, just a few points of application. First of all, meditate on God's power. Think great thoughts of God. 
Remember that he has the power to do all his holy will. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. The arm of the Lord is not shortened. God has power to answer your prayers. Bring your needs to him and pray and believe that he's able to do far more abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Secondly, in addition to meditating on the power of God, meditate on the glory of God. Think great thoughts of God and consider the most breathtakingly beautiful things you can think of on earth. Whether it's a panoramic scene or whether it's a beautiful person, a beautiful painting, and consider that the most breathtakingly beautiful things you can see in this present age are nothing compared to the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of God in his glory. Use that as a, as a remedy against temptation when you're drawn to something that's not right for you to be drawn to. Thank God for the beauty of His holiness because it surpasses whatever it is that's alluring you. Third application. Each and every one of us, every person in this room, has need that God in His wrath would remember mercy. We need Him to do that. And it's only through the Lord Jesus Christ that God's wrath can be mitigated with mercy. Jesus, true man and true God, is the one and only mediator between God and man. It was a statement of faith in the early church to say, Jesus is Lord. And when they said Jesus is Lord, it was an affirmation of his deity. They were thinking of Lord in Old Testament terms, the covenant name Yahweh. And when they said Jesus is Lord, it was no less than saying he is God. So in all of our reading about the Lord in the Old Testament, we must never separate that from Christ because he is Lord. And then finally, cultivate the fear of the Lord. Cultivate faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself speaking through the Old Testament prophet, said, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for our glorious Savior. We thank you that he has power to save. We thank you that you sent him to die for sinners such as we are. We pray that you'd put the fear of you in our hearts in greater abundance. We pray that you'd draw many to the forgiveness that you offer in Christ. Show their hearts, show our hearts that there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. All this we pray for your honor and your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name.